All statements and opinions expressed by guests of the Adult in the Room podcast are strictly their own and do not necessarily reflect the beliefs or opinions of the host, producers, or advertisers. All interviews are presented in their most complete possible form in the interests of free speech. No statements should be interpreted as financial, legal, or medical advice. Listener and viewer discretion are strongly advised. It's the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. That's me. Welcome to the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. If you read or hear the news, thoughtful people cannot help but be concerned about American institutions seemingly all at once forgetting their reason for being there. They've come untethered from their moorings. The idea of equal justice, I mean... Is there such a thing anymore? Does anyone actually believe it anymore? <laughs> Stanford Law School has to send its students back to free speech 101 class because a vocal minority of students think their opinions are the only ones that should be allowed to be heard, and they do it at full volume. Yale Law offers classes on every conceivable diversity, equity, inclusion niche, and professors don't teach enough of the basics. Harvard installs a DEI maven into the president's office, and though there's an entire department devoted to diversity, a whole office proclaims that the school needs more. And that leaves the question, what's getting crowded out? So there's an old saying at church, and it goes something like this. You know, some Christians are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. And another, grow where you're planted. There's no growing, and there's little planting and nurturing of foundational ideas on college campuses and diversity of ideas is just kind of in the toilet, I believe. These are the people who find themselves in the Department of Justice, too. Those people work somewhere. They went to college somewhere. Now they're in the Department of Justice. They're in the Southern District of New York. They're in Washington, D.C., and in the local prosecutor's offices, using their offices to paint political targets instead of seeking equal justice. The administrative state is being weaponized against the individual. That's me. That's you. A reporter testifying in Congress about out-of-control state actors gets a personal visit from the IRS saying without saying, gee, it sure would be a shame if anything happened with your tax returns. 2012's IRS is back, except this time there are 87,000 more of them and they've all got guns. You cannot help but shake your head at what has happened to the January 6th arrestees, many still in jail, still without court dates, still with uh, being shoehorned into guilty pleas to something, could change, don't know, or face a 20-year sentence. A recent survey shows clearly that Americans believe less in the American dreams of individualism, fairness, and equality. Patriotism has plummeted, religious beliefs have been replaced with secular political dogma, and on and on it goes. So the other day I was writing a, a piece for PJ Media about how possible state actors, possible state actors, uh, helped bring down the barricades around the west entrance of the Capitol building on January 6, 2021. Now, it's not proven, but it hasn't been disproven either. We're still waiting. For everything to settle, to find out if there were state actors encouraging riotous behavior on January 6, 2021. 
And so they took down these barricades and all of a sudden grandmas from Dubuque and other people, some who were bad actors and others who were not, suddenly found themselves in an area that was off limits to these people. They were brought into the system and now they are victims rather than perpetrators. So anyway, I was writing that and I thought of the book, Three Felonies a Day, How the Feds Target the Innocent. And it seems like we see that every day. Now, that book came out in 2011. Alan Dershowitz wrote the foreword for it. And I got in touch with the author, Harvey Silverglade. And he was gracious enough to say, sure, I'll come on the Adult in the Room podcast. So indeed, Harvey Silverglade has watched it all. He's a civil rights lawyer for years and years, columnist for the Boston Herald, a teacher at Harvard and other schools you've heard of, such as the University of Massachusetts, Boston. And he's the founder of FIRE and has been an attorney for EFF. Harvey Silverglade, thanks so much for coming on the Adult in the Room podcast. Well, thanks for inviting me to speak to your audience. Uh, we um, read your book and we say, you know, the guy knew what he was talking about. He saw the, the administrative state, the justice system, all of it just running rampant in 2011. Plenty of examples in your book. Uh, how much worse is it, is it now? Well, it is worse now, um, and it's partly because um, there's um, the the federal government has unwisely uh, stoked the fires of a virtual civil war. It was unnecessary to happen. I mean, I'm a student of the the way the the our civil war started in this country, and. Um, it really started by accident. Um, we bumbled into it. It was probably unnecessary. Um, slavery was on the way out anyway because economically it wasn't working at the, anymore in the age of industrialization. We bumbled into a civil war in this country that was devastating. And the results of which are still, I mean, the country is still divided north and south. Um, and in the last few years, uh, starting with when Trump became president and the, 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 the left declared war. Now, when I say left, by the way, I don't mean liberals. I am a liberal, which is a person on the left who believes in the Bill of Rights. I'm talking about a different left, the hard left. They call themselves progressives. And it's like, the, the word is really a, a, very misleading. They're not progressive in the way of progress. They are uh, stoking culture wars. And um, there are a few people on the right who want to take them on on the, those same terms, um, leaving the real conservative movement looking on with amazement at what's going on in this country. Um the, uh, the whole thing about the Capitol, as a criminal defense lawyer, I find it very interesting that people who are guilty have been mixed in with people who are innocent. There were people who were there as bystanders who have been tried as insurrectionists. You can't make this up. This is the United States of America. This is not Russia. This is not Iran. Um, you just can't make it up. And it is... Um, we are in a fraught moment, and we have to be very careful about how we handle it. 
because you know the future of our uh, democracy, of our, the future of our Bill of Rights is at stake. This is very serious stuff. It is. And it, of course, the Wall Street Journal opinion poll showed recently that people in America have become more and more untethered to the institutions. They have much more disdain for them and they don't rely upon, well, they can't trust justice. They can't trust patriotism because they're getting so upset about what the government is doing to them. What's the fix? Well, the Wall Street Journal is an interesting study. It's a conservative newspaper. Of the major papers in the country, it is the only conservative newspaper. The Washington Post, the New York Times, the Boston Globe, uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer, the San Francisco Chronicle, all these papers have become progressive. Again, not liberal. Talking, pro I'm fine with liberalism. Progressivism, I am not fine with. And you can't, what, what you can't, I, I'm fine with editorial pages I disagree with. Happens all the time. I'm very upset where I know the facts of a news story and I read them in the paper and the paper is nothing like the facts that I know because I'm a lawyer participating in, in them. As you may know, I represent John Eastman and I'm reading the reports about the government going after him. And it's like I'm reading fiction. These are major daily news, national newspapers that even have international editions. If I want to know what's going on, I read the news pages of the Wall Street Journal. The journal's editorial pages hue to conservative, of course. It's been so forever. But the news pages are accurate. Now, they're limited. They, they, they cover major national stories. They're covering, for example, Ukraine, which is not technically a business-related story, but it, it is a major story, and they're covering it. And if you want to know what's going on in Ukraine, you have to read the Wall Street Journal. If you want to know what's going on in Washington, you have to read the Wall Street Journal. The editorial pages, Hugh Conservative. The news pages, a straight arrow. Now, why is this so in this country? Well, what has happened to the left? I'm a person on the left. I'm very concerned about it. Um, anyway, so the, 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 there's my, my gripe. John Eastman, I, a constitutional lawyer, he's, a, he's a, a man who's been a dean of a law school. He's, he's no joke. He's a serious person. He is a very serious scholar. He is a very serious scholar and lawyer, and he's being treated like some kind of insurrectionist fascist. It is unbelievable. He has been brought up on charges, from what I can gather, for proffering a legal theory and suggesting that to President Trump, and that was his insurrectionist moment. Right. When I was in law school, that was called, called creative lawyering coming up with a theory that nobody else, he's brilliant, by the way, coming up with a theory that nobody else has thought about. And it's a legal theory. He wasn't suggesting bringing in the army. He wasn't suggesting bringing in rifles. He was a lawyer with a legal theory, and he's, he's being looked at as a criminal. 
it boggles my mind. Well, in your book, you write about how the nebulousness, if you will, of the criminal justice system, the regulations that we've imposed now and and now are being enforced and used in ways that we've never even conceived that they could be used. Well, and yeah. You, you want me to explain the basis for this, how this has happened? Yes. It's actually, it's very simple. Federal law, federal criminal law is unique. In state courts, the law is based upon English common law principles. Over the course of centuries, and we're talking many centuries, both before and after the American Revolution, English common law has evolved through court interpretations of general principles. So in the, in the, state, in the state courts in this country, with the exception of Louisiana, which has the, the French Napoleonic Code, every state is a common law state meaning that the law has evolved according to societal practice and understanding. When you're charged in the state court with larceny, everybody knows what that means. When you're charged with riot, everybody knows what that means. When you're charged with murder, everybody knows what that means. In the federal court, you're charged with mail fraud. Nobody knows what that means. <laughs> and the reason is this. The only way the federal government has asserted jurisdiction over ordinary criminal activity is because they have jurisdiction, they have been allowed by the Supreme Court to have jurisdiction based upon the means. By that I mean this. There is no general federal um, jurisdiction over theft by fraud, for example. But if you use the mails or you use the telephone, the facilities of interstate commerce or interstate communication to further a fraud, you are guilty of mail fraud or wire fraud. Mm -hmm. How do you define fraud? Anything that a federal prosecutor can convince a judge is fraud somehow, somehow dishonest. So what I'm saying is, that federal law is so dangerous because it is so ill-defined. Yeah. You don't know your... That's why I say in three felonies a day, the average American goes through a 24-hour day and likely commits three federal felonies and has no idea he or she has done it. You find out when suddenly you become a target for whatever reason. It could be your unpopular political beliefs. You become a target... And the feds can, can find three crimes you committed every single day. I also should point out that the same is true of the prosecutors. They've committed three felonies a day, but guess what? We don't have the power to prosecute them. They have the power to prosecute us. So the system has become extraordinarily dangerous yeah. from a civil libertarian point of view, the federal criminal justice system. It has. Uh let us go back for just a second because I'm dying to know what your thoughts are because you've clearly read some of the internal documents that have gone on, passed and back and forth on the January 6th thing. Do you believe there was, there, were there government actors as agents provocateur? 
Partly there were agents provocateur problems. The other problem is that there has been no distinction made between people who actually committed crimes of destruction of property and trespass and assault and people who were just standing there. The, the doors to the building were open and people walked in and they got arrested and they got prosecuted and they got convicted and they were in jail. They were just there. There, is no, there were no distinctions made. And there was also no accountability on the part of the agents who were the agents provocateur. So the, the number of injustices are, are rampant. And when I talk about this, people say, oh, well, you have a client, you know, who's, who's mm -hmm. there, who's, um, not, not at the Capitol, but who's there in, in, in Georgia. That day. He was in Washington, so, D.C. that day and in and Georgia. He was in Washington. <laughs> and, and so, you know, you're, you're biased. But of course, I have had a long career of, of, of representing a lot of people in, in, in terms of civil liberties. I was for 30 years on the board of the Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts, represented a lot of people I disagreed with, um, who, who I had nothing to do with except that they came to me um, with a, uh, a civil liberties problem. And, and now it's rampant because you can't depend on the Department of Justice to... Um, to supervise uh, this craziness. Are there any limiting principles at the DOJ anymore? And if so, what are they? Well, I think that w what has to happen, um, uh, Congress, Congress can probably do something about this, but there is one problem. Historically, Congress has not wanted to take on the FBI. Why? Because they don't want to pr promote provoke an FBI investigation of them. That's right. With the three felonies a day's principle, you can indict any congressman. So the FBI has a, it holds a terror, um, you know, the power of terror over, over mm -hmm. the legislators. And, and that's the problem. And the problem is the FBI is there from one administration to the next administration to the next administration. There's an internal bureaucracy. They're lifers. Mm -hmm. There's an internal bureaucracy that outlasts any administration. It's there. It started with J. Edgar Hoover, and it hasn't gotten any better um, since then. And I can tell you FBI stories that will curdle your blood. Oh, I'd like to hear one. You want to hear a couple? Sure, yeah. Okay. One is, the, is, is this, you know, I've been a somewhat controversial lawyer from time to time. <laughs> and I was, um, I had a case in which I made an allegation that an FBI agent had phonied up a report. And I could, it's very easy for them to phony up reports. I can go into that in a minute. And um, the FBI didn't like it. They planted two agents outside my office building. At the time, it was on Broad Street in Boston, downtown Boston. And what they did was when I came out the door, they followed me. They wanted to know where I was going. They tailed me. Mm -hmm. One day, two agents were outside, and somebody who they thought was me, but it was not me. It was somebody else in the building who probably was my age, maybe looked a little bit like me, they followed him. He went underneath the Southeast Expressway, which was an overhead that since has been torn down, 
and there was a car parked under it. And there was a woman behind the steering wheel. And this lawyer or person, who may not have been a lawyer, I don't know who it was, got into the car and engaged in oral sex with this woman, then went back to work. The agents were so excited, they wrote up the story, and if they, they put it in the file so that if they ever needed something against me, they would have something against me. How did I find out about it? A friend of mine who's a very prominent criminal lawyer in Boston, he had a case in which he, that file happened to be produced accidentally in the, through discovery in the case, and he read it. And he <laughs> called me up and says, Harvey, you are not going to believe this. This is why you know, the FBI has this report on you. Well, I was incredulous because cynical, you could be as, how cynical can you get? Guess what? You aren't cynical enough. You're not cynical enough. Is oh this unbelievable? God. It was an extortion. Oh. They, they were looking, if, if I yes. ever made an allegation That's against right. an agent, they were going to extort me. Let me just pause there for a moment to say, that's exactly what J. Edgar Comey did, if you will, to President Trump when he yep. told him about the notorious P tape in which it was alleged that hookers employed by then President, by President Trump in a Moscow hotel were peeing on the bed. Uh, because it had been Obama's bed used by Obama and his wife when they went to Moscow. Yep. Was this a defensive briefing? No. It was a tell. It was a shot across the bow that I've got the goods on you. And also, of course, used to tell CNN and the New York Times and all that stuff. To, hey, it's the all clear. He's been, yep. he's been notified. And remember this. Presidents have four-year terms. And under the Constitution, the most they can have is an eight-year term. Presidents come and presidents go. The FBI is there forever. They outlast any president. And historically, we know that the FBI has not hesitated to blackmail presidents and members of Congress. So what is your suggestion? Well, you were going to tell me one more story about what the FBI has done that is okay. over the top. Here's a great story. The FBI has a policy. This is a formal written policy. When they go in to interview you, if, if you get a call from an agent, they want to talk to you, you, you say, okay, come on in. Most people don't even bother calling their lawyer. They just, they haven't done anything wrong. Ooh. And they, they go undergo interview. The agents come in. There are two of them. The FBI never interviews anybody without two agents present. Now, here's the reason why. One of them takes notes. The other one asks the questions. The one who takes the notes goes back to FBI headquarters and types out a report of what was asked and what was answered. This is called a Form 302. That is the official record of the interview. And if you later testify, your lawyer has access to the 302 and you see it. And what you realize is if you testify differently from what the 302 says you testify to, you're caught between a stone and a hard place. Why? If you testify differently from the 302, they will charge you with perjury. 
either perjury at the trial or they will charge you with another felony, lying to an FBI agent. So whichever version is true, it doesn't matter. You've committed a federal crime by testifying differently from what the agent said you said at the interview. So they have you locked in to whatever testimony they write in the th in 302, which is the version they want to be true, which is mm -hmm. not necessarily what you said. Now, when I have a client who the FBI asks to interview, I say, sure, come on down to my office. I say, well, we'd rather do it in FBI office. I say, well, you know, I'd rather do it in my office. So come on down to my office and my client will submit to an interview. The two agents come in and one of them takes out the pad. The other one gets ready to question. I pull out a tape recorder. Now they're no longer tape. Now it's electronic. Mm -hmm. I pull out a recorder. They said, oh, we, our regulations, we're not allowed to have these recorded. This is an actual FBI regulation. They may not interview a witness on, if it's being recorded. Okay, let me put it this way. What it really means is they will not do an interview if there's an accurate record of it. They want the Form 302 to be the only unquestioned record of what was said in the Q&A. And I say, well, I have my own policy. My own policy is I don't allow my clients to give, give interviews unless I'm allowed to record them, mm -hmm. in which case the agents get up and walk out. Or you escort them to the door. Right. But why do they walk out? Because I wanted to have an unquestioned, accurate record of what the Q&A was. You, this is unbelievable. We're not, we're not talking about Russia now. We're not talking about Iran. We're not talking about Belarus. We are talking about the United States of America. We have all these nebulous laws, the administrative state and everything. Now, let me ask you something, getting into the weeds a little bit. <clears throat> Do you believe that part of the problem we have with federal law Federal regulations is the Chevron deference, and yeah. will you be okay? I, you see, the problem is under the guise of this seemingly simple, seemingly innocuous statute, mail fraud, mail fraud, wire fraud. The feds have enacted tens of thousands of regulations, each of which has the force of criminal law. Mind you, Congress has never voted on any of these things, mm. and. You can violate, you go through a typical day. This is what three felonies a day means. You go through a typical day, you invariably commit a few arguable federal felonies because they're so ill-defined. Mm -hmm. If they need to use you either as a witness or they want to get you as a defendant, they can go through your typical day and they can, you, they can find some crime you committed, some arguable crime. Just in the course of living normally, you commit arguable crimes. And so this whole system has to be changed root and branch. It's a massive job that would have to be done. How would you do and, that? Well, I think that uh, one thing I have always hoped is that there would be somebody on the Supreme Court who would organize a Supreme Court majority to put an end to this on the ground that it's a violation of due process of law to subject somebody to such vague standards 
criminal behavior. So you're talking about the Chevron deference right here? Yeah. or Okay. Yeah, well, they keep chipping away at it. And my understanding is there's a case, I thought it was this session, and I haven't paid too close of attention, but that would do basically do away with it unless... Well, it would, it would certainly be a start. And, um, you, know, you know, I think it, the principle, the principle has to uh, um, govern the approach to all federal criminal laws. Ultimately, that should be it. If you have committed a federal fraud, the indictment has to be specific. What is fraud? I think that the Supreme Court should insist that common law principles should apply to federal law so that we have we know what it is ahead of time. We know what it is that's illegal and the any indictment has to specify clearly what the conduct is. You can't just say he committed mail fraud because he said something that, you know, arguably somebody could misunderstand. That should no longer suffice as a as a federal crime. Would you ever consider defending President Trump? He clearly needs lawyers to. Absolutely. And Alan Dershowitz, you know, who's, by the way, a good friend of mine, he and I met, he was a first year professor at Harvard Law School the year I was a first year student. We met and we became solid friends. We've been friends. We've done many cases together. Um, I'm going into New York in a couple of weeks to visit my son and daughter-in-law and grandkids. I'm stopping by to see Alan. Um, and, um, uh, you know, he uh, has gotten um, a lot of blowback because he represented Trump in the first impeachment. Now, he didn't vote for Trump. He's a liberal Democrat, my liberal, not progressive. Right. Not the oppressives. They're oppressive. Right. Let's just be He's clear a liberal about that. Democrat. He did not vote for Trump, but he represented him. There are people who don't talk to him now. Right. For God's sakes. He's a lawyer. He's represented Klaus von Bülow. He's represented O.J. Simpson, people who have who have um, probably murdered their spouses and gotten away with it, partly because Alan is such a brilliant lawyer and he did his job well. There are people who won't talk to him because he represented Trump on the impeachment. You can't make this up. I mean, it's a horror story about where this country and its culture is gone. In your book, you talk about the principle of fair warning. Um, that should play into, you should know what someone, you should take into consideration the intent of the person, right? Not only should, you must. Intent is an absolutely essential qualification for a criminal prosecution. Well, how the come person, it doesn't apply to those people in January 6 cases? Correct. The definition, the common law definition of what a crime is, is an intentional act by a person who knew that he or she was violating a known, clear criminal uh, statute. That is the definition, the common law definition. And we prosecute in the federal courts, not the state courts, we prosecute in the federal courts people who had no way of knowing that something they've done could arguably be shoehorned into the definition of a federal crime under one of these impossible to define federal statutes. This is the uh, basis of, this is how tyrannies get going. You know, during the um, Stalin period in Russia, Stalin had a, a secret police uh, chief named Ivranti Beria, B-E-R-I-A. 
And Beria used to say to Stalin, concerning Stalin's perceived enemies, and of course, Stalin to Stalin, everybody was an enemy because he was paranoid. You show me the man and I'll show you the crime. That meant, don't worry, everybody is vulnerable under the Soviet criminal code. And if there's somebody we want to get, you point him out to me and I will manufacture a prosecution. That was very... And unfortunately, this has become the the modern-day United States. It's terribly aggravated. We're told that the FBI is going to round up another 1,000 people who were on or near or something having to do with the Capitol incursion January 6th, 2021. Right. People who were there. People who were there. Amazing. And I hope the courts don't allow this to happen. I'm, I'm counting. Oh, I, do you see any court, any judge in the Washington, D.C. area? Not in over- Washington. Not in Washington. But nobody but gets I'll a change you, of venue. But I'll tell you this. That I think the Supreme Court uh, may very well put an end to a lot of this stuff as cases start to filter up the system. I hope that there are appeals. I hope that people just don't go to jail without appealing. They can't get attorneys. They can't. They they can't. These people, there are attorneys. There's one attorney who's got 18 clients, and he, and he doesn't even know them all. I mean, yeah. that's how he's he's one of the few who will take them. Well, I'll tell you, um, I'm one of the lawyers for Eastman. This is not somebody who's going to lie down and be quiet if he's charged with anything. Mm-hmm. Trust me. Yeah. Okay. I'll take it from his lawyer. Um, You talk about the FBI. When did they start turning into a secret police? Pretty much from the beginning, J. Edgar Hoover. This is a long, this is deep in their culture. It's from the start. And um, Hoover actually, um, he blackmailed members of Congress. Um, You know, he, he knew about their personal lives. He had no... No problem uh, wiretapping a congressman. He wire, he wiretapped John F. Kennedy, the president of the United States. And Kennedy was not faithful to his wife, and Hoover was able to prove it. And instead of indicting Hoover, the Department of Justice went along with this. Hoover is a criminal. He should have been indicted. He should have been imprisoned. Instead, he spent his whole life as the first director of the FBI. Yeah. Well, and uh, here we go again. We have Chris Ray. <clears throat> now, I I know Trump named him as FBI director after he fired Comey. And I say to myself, you know, personnel is, is uh, what do we call it? Personnel is um, the way we do things. There's, a, there's a, actually a pithy statement that I'm, for whatever reason, policy. Personnel is policy. Chris Ray is horrible. I mean, when, for example, they decided the the FBI trotted out <clears throat> something on the order of 15 Russians who were basically nameless, faceless individuals who would never face justice. They were the bot farmers. And then they had a dog and pony show to, to say, well, triumphantly, we've, we've gotten these people or we've indicted them. And that was supposed to be the big Russian uh, interference in the 2016 election. And I, they, those people have never come 
to justice. That was a that was a lie. That was that was a lie. Your attorneys, you're an attorney. I mean, um, is the FBI something that should just be gotten rid of wholly? I think the culture is so rotten that it does have to be gotten rid of. I think it's beyond reform. And as I said earlier, it has to be replaced with a whole new agency with a different name, different personnel, and therefore different culture. The, I, don't, I think it's beyond reform. It's got to be abolished. Uh, the bill that we're hearing a lot about, uh, the concern, and all of a sudden we we have to get rid of TikTok. We have to get rid of TikTok. It's a national security issue. Uh, and so, um, okay, fair enough. It probably is. I've read enough about TikTok and I've read about enough about what the Chinese do to believe that. But what do they do? They come up with a so-called Restrict Act, which just empowers the different agencies of government, for example, it's, it stands for, I'm reading here, the restricting the emergence of security threats and risk information and communications technology to give the Department of Commerce and other agencies that deal with international trade the ability to come with guns and or using the DOJ to go after individuals, and it doesn't specify who, to empower them to look even further for uh, malevolent tendencies, uh, actions that may be against the the law and all this other. Um, this sounds like the the Patriot Act again. I'm I'm not sure that TikTok has to be gotten rid of. I think that maybe the way to deal with it is to require disclosure of ownership and of any influence that the Chinese government has over the operation of. TikTok. Um, I tend to think that sunlight is the best disinfectant. And um, I think it would be more uh, in accord with American values to not abolish it, but to require full disclosure of the influence of the Chinese government over the operation of the app. Mm -hmm. Then what do you do? For example, they, they've used it already to suggest that an environmental uh, uh, program that the Biden administration miraculously was considering in Alaska, um, that, that all of a sudden it just went viral on TikTok. And it was nobody had heard of it. I mean, nobody had heard of it. They inject into the system, into the body politic, the political water table, if you will, ideas and certain things that do tend to change minds. I I think full disclosure, if they could if it could be figure if we could figure out how to require it and enforce it, I think that full disclosure is the best way to deal with TikTok. Okay. And now, eventually what would happen is some comp some competing service would emerge that's more reliable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In your book, Three Felonies a Day, you talk about how, let me just make sure I, that the law schools seem to be, oh no, excuse me, that's uh, one of your Boston Herald columns. You're running for the Harvard Overseer Government yep. Board. And I know that you have concerns about what's going on in the colleges and the universities. And these are the people 
who are training the next bureaucrats and judges and lawyers. Yep. It's a great threat to the future of the country. The, the whole scene um, at colleges and universities is of great aggravation to me because what for several reasons. One is it is so it is the, the colleges and universities have been taken over by progressives, not liberals again, progressives. And they don't have any respect for academic freedom. They also have made sure that an army of administrators is hired by every liberal arts college. It takes, in fact, it takes very few administrators to run a university. But there are now more administrators than there are teachers in American higher education. What they do is, number one, they double the amount that it costs to go to college. So Harvard, which should be 40000 because they have to pay these administrators $80,000 a year. Number two, they harass professors who insist on exercising their academic freedom. And you find professors brought up on charges who have simply said things which challenge the the ruling um, uh, elites and the the, the reigning uh, philosophy of uh, academic um, uh, culture today. What you have um, is um, a notion that American society is evil and that um, it's up to academia to uh, replace a lot of institutions. Now, I don't disagree that we have problems in this country. Every country has problems. Um, but the idea uh, that the progressives have, again, not the liberals, that the progressives have, is that you have to come in and you have to show strength and you have to get rid of the people who are, quote, causing these problems and they want to get rid of essentially true conservatives, and they want to get rid of true liberals. And you have uh, um, administrators who prosecute students for saying things. They're only words for saying things. Her the definition of harassment on a college campus is anything that makes a member of a historically disempowered group uncomfortable. Disempowered groups are women and blacks and gays. Now, I agree that this country, there was a period when women couldn't vote after all. There was a period when blacks were subject to segregation and Jim Crow in the South. There is still discrimination against women. There is still discrimination on the basis of race. There is still some discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. But this country has made tremendous progress peacefully. We learned something from the Civil War. Have made tremendous progress peacefully. And yet the universities are not satisfied following principles of academic freedom. They want to take over and run these institutions. They're doing a damn good job of it. That's the reason I want to run for the Harvard Board of Overseers. 
And let me tell you, I am not the favorite candidate of the people who run Harvard. I bet you're not. <laughs> I'm not. I, was, I graduated from the law school there, but I am not their favorite. Uh, well, you said, uh, at least when I read about your candidacy, we found out that you'd run before, or you, you couldn't get enough signatures for your petition. So Correct. now you're writing as a write-in. You're what writing as a write-in. What they did was they increased the number of signatures required many times because they want to discourage people like me from running mm -hmm. and interfering with the little their little um, you know uh, dance that they do yeah you know the, the members of these boards have no idea what's going on on their own campuses no idea they like the prestige of being on the board but they don't bother looking they don't talk to students for example what worries you the most about that well, I think that a, a nation like ours depends on an educated citizenry. And I think that we're they're getting indoctrinated, not educated. Yeah. I mean, black studies courses, they're a fraud. They're an absolute fraud. <laughs> my my prescription for dealing with the the problem of unequal racial uh, education in this country is that we have to improve public education. And if we improve free public education, black kids will get the same education that white kids get. But it's not going to happen because of the teachers' unions. That's another problem. Public unions. I am in favor of private unions. I am opposed to public unions. Why? Uh, there's no two sides at the bargaining table. That's right. Nobody's that sitting there the, for the kids. It's the fundamental flaw of public education is the teachers run everything and the parents and the voters are are, are powerless. Um, and, and I'm very familiar with public education. I actually taught a course at the Cambridge High School one semester and I saw how they ran the place. And I saw the, you know, it, 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 it's terrible. We, 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 um, it's no, it's no, uh, surprise that so many people who can afford it send their kids to public education or, or to parochial school. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I actually know of several Protestant families that sent their kids to Catholic school because the education at the Catholic school was so superior. Yeah. I did These that with my Protestants who were going to Catholic school. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so today you got up and you maybe read a paper or looked on the internet to find out what the news was. And Harvey, so, you know, you, you've looked at these stories and what made you go, oh, you gotta be kidding me. What happened well, to you today? What, what um, did you think? Uh, the, every day, of course, there's the stories about the FBI, the Department of Justice dealing with the, quote, insurrection. I have to read those carefully because I'm representing a client. Um, I also notice that there's um, somewhat skewed coverage of the war in Ukraine. Uh, if I want to know what's going on in Ukraine, I'm so thankful that the Wall Street Journal considers it a story that even despite its narrow coverage you know, business-related coverage, the journal covers it daily. And so if I want to know what's going on in Ukraine, I read the journal first. I read four newspapers a day. Uh, the print edition, a very old-fashioned, the print edition, I hate reading newspapers online. 
I read the Boston Globe, the Boston Herald, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and I subscribe to the Washington Post online. I read five newspapers. I'm a newspaper junkie. Mm-hmm. And, um, <laughs> and if I want to know what's happened news-wise, I read the journal first, the news pages. Mm-hmm. So... The J6 stuff is really bugging you. The overreach of the FBI and the DOJ has I think it's very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. Yeah. I agree. You know, and and, um they they're using the they're using the so called insurrection. It wasn't an insurrection, by the way, it was a riot. Yeah. Your insurrection that civil war was an insurrection. Yeah. You know, this this was an old fashioned riot in which not everybody who's been charged and even convicted participated. Right. Some riots are more equal than others, as we oh, found yes. out during the uh, 2020 summer, where we were people were given carte blanche. Oh, go ahead, just protest. Protest is good for you. In the without masks, some most of them were wearing masks, of course, because they were Antifa. So, <laughs> do you look back on that time and think to yourself, this this is worse than 1968? I believe it is worse. Yes. The, the 1969, the sides were clear. The what was at stake was clear. Um, we managed to get through it, um, and um, I represented students at Harvard. In well, let me tell you a great 1969 story. I represented 200 Harvard students who were opposed to the Vietnam War. They took over University Hall They in, in a major riot in the Harvard Yard. 200 defendants charged with riot in the Cambridge District Court. My then law partner and still friend, Norman Zolkind and I, and the firm was still called Zolkind and Silverglade, we tried, the, the, were, there was not room in the courtroom for all 200 to be tried at once. The judge divided, first trial was 100 students. The evidence was very clear what they did. No question they were engaged in riot, trespass. They they carried the dean of students out of his office in his chair. Um, a very famous picture of the students just carrying Dean Archie Epps down the staircase and depositing him on the ground. The, the jury acquitted. Why did the jury acquit? Because they were so opposed to the war that they were not about to punish war protesters. It's a, it's a great example of now you you could be a might be in favor of the Vietnam War or not in favor of the Vietnam War, but it's a great example of the power of the people to mm-hmm. to to cancel out the power of prosecutors and deans. Yes, so jury nullification. Jury nullification. It is it is constitutional, it is legal. Judges and structures that they're to follow the law, but juries make the ultimate decision. And the founding fathers who wrote the right to a jury trial to the Constitution have done us all a huge favor by putting the power into the hands of citizens rather than into the hands of prosecutors, as is in, in in France, for example, there is no jury trial. You uh, you're in the hands of the prosecutors. You're in the hands of the state. 
It's frightening. Um, could you, if you were a defense attorney, I'm pretty sure that I know the answer to this, but could you, in closing arguments, or uh, say, and you have the power, the jury, if you don't think this is right, you have the ability to say that the law doesn't apply here. In or... most states, the lawyer, it's considered an improper argument because the the jurors are supposed to follow the judge's instructions as to what the law is. But a good defense lawyer can figure out how to get the message across. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. say to the jury, you have the final unreviewable power. I, know, I don't say to a jury, you can disobey the law. You can disobey the judge's instructions. But the way you put it is, you have the ultimate unreviewable power. If you acquit, there is no appeal. The prosecutor doesn't have an appeal. That's a way of saying indirectly, don't listen to the judge. Don't listen to the prosecutor. Do is that it. what you said? Is that what but you yeah. said in 1969? Yes. That's exactly what we said. And the jurors got the message. Well, Harvey Silverglate, thank you. This has been very eye-opening, wonderful, expansive discussion with you today. And I really appreciate you coming on. What did I not ask you that we need to talk about? Uh, I think we've covered it pretty well. Covered the waterfront, have we? Covered the waterfront, yeah. You've been so gracious with your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Adult in the Room podcast. To keep the programs you like to listen to, please rate this podcast with a fantastic five stars on your Apple podcast app every time you listen and give me a great review. Plus, of course, subscribe to the podcast. It makes a difference with the big tech algorithm and the big tech oligarchs, and it makes us easier to find. Please get in touch with me on all the big tech stuff. Yeah, we're still there. Using the names Victoria Taft or the Adult in the Room podcast on MeWe, Parlor, Minds, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to 1A Cast for imaging, editing, and production. The fantastic song is Gospel by the March 4th Band of Portland, Oregon. Music for Antifa versus Mike Strickland is Ride or Die by Raps by RC. The Adult in the Room podcast is also a production of Flamingo Road Studios. Remember, head up, heart out, and strive to be the adult in the room. Till next time, mischief managed. <laughs>